HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This is Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Ann Saxelby. We are sponsored today by Picnic, Will Goldfarb's Barbecue Paradise in Battery Park City. And we're joined today by two very special guests, Ann Mendelson, author of the book Milk, The Surprising Story of Milk Through the Ages, and also by uh, Mary Habstrit, who is an industrial archaeologist and author of a fascinating paper entitled Manhattanville and New York's Milk Supply, a history. And um, Mary and Anne have been kind enough to join me on the show today to talk a little bit about uh, milk trains, um, a subject that I knew nothing about until I came across uh, Mary's paper last January when I was uh, spelunking around on the internet trying to uh, figure out a little bit more about the history of dairy in the city and how, and how we used to get our, uh, our milk. So thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. <laughs> and uh, I should mention, I should also thank our sponsor, which uh, today is Will Goldfarb's Picnic, which is a wonderful restaurant that just opened uh, down in Battery Park City, serving up some of the finest pork in Manhattan. Um, so before we actually talk about the milk trains, we we're going to kind of build up to, you know, build up to that because it wasn't something that was, uh, you know, that happened overnight. Uh, it was a sort of long and bulky process of trying to trying to figure out uh just you know different methods of distribution and so one of the first things that i wanted to ask uh ann mendelson about was um just a little bit about milk in general um we take for granted today that we drink fresh milk pretty much all the time every day but it wasn't always like that um and i was hoping you could tell us a little bit about how we came to be such milk drinkers um, well, people have been consuming milk for a long time, uh, probably seven or 8,000 years or longer. But we didn't consume milk in the same way. It wasn't fresh. It wasn't liquid. Um, can you hear me okay? Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. It was sour because that is what happens to milk once it leaves the animal. Um, it is colonized by the local bacteria. And in a hot climate like the Middle East, where dairying originated, uh, the milk is going sour within a matter of hours. Now, that isn't bad. That's uh, something that people welcomed. Um, It made the milk keep longer. Um, It made it somewhat more resistant to invasions of unfriendly bacteria. Um, But somehow... It's one of those historical changes that nobody is sure how it happened, but it sure happened. Um, Sometime between the late 18th and early 19th century, uh, there came to be this assumption that fresh, unsoured milk uh, was 
superior, especially for kids, especially um, it was an ideal food for children, and especially cow's milk, um, and that there was something suspect about sour milk. Um, by the beginning of the 20th century, um, I once read in an autobiography by Josephine Baker, not that Josephine Baker, um, <laughs> but the first head of the, the um, I think it was called the Child Hygiene Bureau of the New York City Health Department. So around the turn of the 20th century, um, late 1890s, um, she related that pediatricians all univer universally stipulated um, that from the time a child was weaned until its first birthday, it should be fed nothing but milk, just a pure milk diet, nothing else. Um, think of it nowadays. This is just a terrible um, recipe for vitamin deprivation, but nothing but milk um, until the first birthday when you started it on spinach and carrots. Anyhow, um, they were all um, agreed, all the doctors, um, she said, um, that sour milk was a deadly poison. Nobody knows how this change happened throughout the 19th century, um, but we are still I think, caught in this assumption that there's something special about fresh milk. About fresh um, milk. Yeah, that it ought to have a preeminent place in any enlightened diet, and especially children's diets. Okay, interesting. Um, I remember reading something in your book, um, you know, taking it back a little bit further even than the uh, 18th and, or well, the 19th and 20th mm -hmm. centuries, um, talking about how uh, a populations came to drink fresh milk at all, um, adults as well as children, because mm -hmm. um, that was not, uh, milk isn't a substance that's even easily digested by, by many adults. Is that, uh, is that true? Um, milk in, in the fresh state is really undigestible or indigestible by an awful lot of people, probably a majority of the human race. Um, it is, the problem is lactose. And most people... Most human beings, once they've been weaned from mother's milk, they lose the ability to digest lactose. Their systems stop producing this particular enzyme, lactase, and they become lactose intolerant, or um, another way of saying it is lactase deficient, hmm. except this is the normal state. This is um, the way most people are. There happen to be a few little mutant populations here and there uh, that retain lactase persistence or lactose tolerance into adulthood. And, and where, where were those populations centralized? I mean, was there a specific part of the world or were they all over the place? Well, um, that's the essential fact. Um, they're the people that colonized North America, um, people from northwestern Europe, uh, northern France, um, along the Baltic, uh, along the North Sea, um, and especially Great Britain. These people not only could digest fresh, unsoured milk, over the centuries um, they came to think, well, that's a more enlightened way of consuming milk, and nobody really knows why. Nobody knows how this change came about. So we had sort of the perfect storm in a way, a coupling of this uh, ability mm -hmm. to digest milk as an adult uh, and, uh, and sort of the push for milk as a pure and almost and, and healthful food for um, children and adults that kind of uh, led to this desire, this like overwhelming desire for fresh milk that didn't exist in other parts of the world up until very mm -hmm. recently. Didn't exist in other parts of the world. Um, and even today, you'll find um, the transition is happening um, in third world countries where people want to be really modern and enlightened. Um, they absorb this gospel um, that no matter if you've been eating yogurt because all your ancestors ate it for thousands of years, uh, fresh milk is somehow more Western, mm -hmm. more modern. It, it belongs to the enlightened world. That's very interesting. Actually, my uh, my business partner took a trip to China 
um, a little over a year ago with his wife, and uh, he was commenting on the availability of milk products in the grocery stores there. And he said, you know, obviously there's very little cheese and dairy um, in the Chinese food uh, or in our Chinese cuisine in general, but um, at the supermarkets there, they would sell milk and alongside of it, you know, attached to the same package would be a little container of yogurt. So it was almost like huh. a milk, like starter kit, you know, <laughs> like eat the yogurt first and then maybe you move on to the milk or vice versa. I thought that was very interesting and almost a little bit insidious the way that they're, you know, trying to push that as uh, a food. Mm -hmm. I think um, there's starting to be a little bit of a Chinese dairy industry, but a lot of the milk comes from Australia. Um, and I think it's very it's a it's a big customer for Australian milk. Interesting, very very interesting. Um, so we were talking about we're talking about sort of on on the show today. Uh, milk trains affected New York City in particular, uh, or you know milk trains were used across the country, but um, we're talking specifically about New York because that's where we are. And um, you were talking a little bit about milk as something that was pushed as a health substance or a health food especially for uh for kids and um can we i was just wondering if we could talk a little bit about um sort of problems that arose but maybe uh before we before we do that we should probably take a short break and then we can come back and discuss a little bit how uh this introduction of milk into the urban food supply came along with some some issues so after a short break we'll be right back i'm a fool to want you i'm a fool to want you To cutting the curd uh, on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Ann Saxelby, and I'm joined today by uh, Mary Habstrit and Ann Mendelson. We're talking about milk trains in New York City and uh, sort of what a big role they played in our uh, in our city's foodscape. Um, but uh, we're going to talk a little bit now about. Um, milk being introduced uh you know but basically how how we got from your backyard dairy cow in the city to you know big dairies in the city to dairies moving outside the city that need to supply the ever-growing urban population with uh with milk so um there were dairies in the city for quite a long time isn't that right yeah, actually, from the colonial days, there people had cows in the city and would pasture them on, you know, the village green. 
and it was sort of communal. Mm-hmm. And then um, obviously the city was getting more and bu- more built up, and the cows were and farms were getting pushed further and further away, and um, different schemes had to be come up had to be developed to get the milk into the city and originally people just brought it in on wagons in buckets and other kinds of containers that were just open and the dust from the road would get in the milk and they would deliver it to your house and just dipper some out into your pitcher you'd bring your own container out Mm -hmm. and the milkman would um, put some milk into it and you'd take it inside Um, and then as the farms kept getting further and further away, they had to find ways that the milk could travel. This is before refrigeration without spoiling. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing they started doing is delivering it more often. They would deliver milk to the city twice a day from farms out in Brooklyn. Okay. Um, and eventually they went to trains. Okay. And uh, while these farms were still in Brooklyn, um, some of these farms were uh, legitimate farms, but there were also some pretty illegitimate uh, methods of keeping cows in the city. Um, I remember hearing stories about swill dairies existing alongside of uh, breweries in the city and sort of um, the mixing of, of those industries, the brewing industry and the dairy industry, and how that might have been a big culprit, um, you know, uh, to some uh, different milkborne illnesses that became quite a, a problem. Yeah, one thing that um, they started doing, um, obviously one of the main problems as the city grew was that there wasn't a place to pasture the cows. You didn't have something right there on the spot to feed them. And so the distilleries that were making whiskey and bourbon and scotch and whatever, um, the grain that was left after they pressed out the liquid, they started marketing as cattle feed. And they actually set up a system where the cows could be stabled right at the distillery and fed this mash that came out of the factory. And although it was considered quite nutritious, cows are not meant to eat that. They're meant to eat grass. Exactly. That's the definition of a ruminant. A cow's a ruminant animal, and they they like to ruminate and eat plenty of pasture. Exactly. (laughs) So they weren't really getting the nutrition that they needed from it, and so the milk they were producing was not very nutritious in turn. And it was described in the press as being thin and blue and sounded pretty disgusting. And um, the uh, dairymen would doctor it with things to make it look like it was good milk. They would put chalk in it to make it whiter. Um, They would put um, yellow coloring in eggs, um, annatto, which is an early food coloring, Mm -hmm. um, to make it look creamier. And um, children were actually getting sick from it because it, it didn't have the right nutrition in it. So milk was being touted as this sort of miracle food, stu- food substance for children. And uh, while that was happening, you have uh, this milk industry growing up in and alongside the city that had no way of supplying uh, good, clean milk to, to children or anybody, really. Right. Yeah. And if they were bringing it in from outside the city, then they had the whole problem of it spoiling on the way. And there were, there were a lot of problems with children um, dying, not just getting sick, but dying from bad milk. You cite some pretty gruesome statistics in your paper about, at, ter- at certain points, uh, just how many children were affected by this. Um, can you give us a little bit of an example? Yeah. Um, I'll have to read some of these numbers, uh, but um, this is uh, in the um, late 19th century. The death rate was 96.2 per 1,000 children, and um, those are children under the age of five during the summer months when obviously it was even harder to keep the milk from spoiling. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, in the summer months it actually jumped up to 136 children per 1,000. They called it um, summer illness yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. Interesting. And um, as um, other methods of uh, keeping milk improved, then um, by 1906, the death rate had fallen to 55 per thousand and in the summer down to 62.7. So um, and that and what was happening around that time was um, people started a pure milk movement um, to encourage milk to be cleaner in different ways like there was a certified milk movement where there was actually a commission of inspectors who would go out to the dairy farms and make sure they were clean uh check the bacteria level in the milk 
um, make sure that the barns were clean, the cows were clean, the, the, the containers the milk was being put in were clean. The guys washed their hands before they milked the cows. Yeah. <laughs> and some of it, it is very mm-hmm. simple stuff, you know, yeah. um, washing the cow's udders mm-hmm. before you milk them. Yeah. Well, so that's interesting because um, now, you know, with food being uber regulated in our mm-hmm. current day and age, I mean, to the point where they pretty much nuke everything before it gets to a grocery store. I guess that's a little extreme. But um, back then there was really no regulatory body uh, federally. It seems like it was more of what you're talking about was more of a push by consumers of milk to try and impose some standards of, of quality and cleanliness on their on their food. Yeah, it was very localized. It was usually city governments that were regulating. And sometimes as it became more um, corporate than the companies, um, partly because they knew they'd be answerable to the cities, the dairy companies were regulating their suppliers. Okay. Okay. Well, it became practical for cities to have really effective health departments uh, before it became possible for there to be similarly efficient regulation of the national food supply. So there was for a long time a patchwork of different city ordinances that started in the biggest cities, um, the earliest, and kind of gradually filtered out. It was in the 1920s and 30s that um, people started saying, we better have a little more uniformity here, at least within states. Okay, okay. And um, But I remember also reading a little bit in, in your paper, Mary, that um, some of the original pure milk crusaders were uh, private business people, um, entrepreneurs. Um, you talk a lot about, um, I believe, Nathan Strauss was his name? Uh, yeah, and he was from the family that founded the Macy's Department Stores. And in 1893, he opened his first milk station as as part of his campaign to improve the milk supply. And um, it was on a pier on the east side, so it was really geared toward the new immigrants of the Lower East Side. And he was he had a little pasteurization plant there, and mothers could come in with their children and buy good quality milk at a low price. And also um, stay that he had nice chairs and tables. You could sit there and just relax and and experience the sun and the breezes. You know, so it's sort of a healthy environment too. And he offered classes in childcare and nutrition. Um, so he was really trying to educate them. Interesting, interesting. So um, they were. So he was basically he was providing access to good clean milk uh, to a population that would normally not have a, a way of getting it. Um, there's so many parallels between what we're talking about with this and I feel how our food supply is uh, is set up right now in that oftentimes the people who are most victimized or who, who uh, basically there, there's a lack of access to good fresh food for mm-hmm. um, lower income families or for uh, recent immigrants or something like that. It's harder for them to get access to this, uh, you know, this good food. And that was really a big step, a big social step for him to, to do that. Yeah. And he went on to actually sell small home pasteurizers in his store. And um, it said that there were mothers on the Lower East Side that were pasteurizing milk before the dairy companies were. That's incredible. I thought I thought that was amazing as well because you know being a, a business person, uh, he knew his business. Uh, they always say you know in business you have to know what you do well and and what you don't do well and let somebody else do those other parts. Um, so he wasn't obviously going to become a dairyman or you know create his own uh, milk distribution business, but he could manufacture these small units that then people could buy and use to, uh, you know, improve their, their milk supply at home. Yeah, and he, he offered to set up these milk stations in cities around the country. He did a letter writing campaign to mayors. So he tried to make it bigger and go beyond, um, you know, just helping individual families or even helping one city. He really tried to make it a nationwide effort. And um, and so who were some other people that were involved in, uh, you said there was also a certified milk movement that was a little bit different? Yeah, that was, um, cities would have commissions that they created, usually with doctors as the commissioners, and they would actually go out and inspect the farms. 
one thing about it, though, is that it was relatively expensive. For one thing, um, you had professionals who were doing the inspections, and um, it took time. And um, the certified milk was sold for a little bit more money, but it couldn't be done on a large scale. And I think that's what really led to industrial-level pasteurization, is it could be done on, an, on a big scale. It could pro- provide the quantity of milk that was really needed to supply a city. Interesting. So all of this is leading up to, uh, you know, our, our sort of uh, the point of our whole conversation, which are, of course, the milk trains. Yeah. Um, so can you tell us uh, a little bit about um, how train became or the, 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 you know, the train became the preferred uh, method, method of uh, delivery of, of shipment of milk from uh, rural farms into the into the city? Well, first, uh, to kind of have it in context, the first railroad in New York opened in 1831. And I mentioned that because the first train that we know of that carried milk was 1842. So they figured out pretty quickly that that was a good method for moving milk. Um, and it's attributed to the New York and Erie Railroad. A station master upstate New York was like, wow all these farmers could be taking their milk into the city on the train. And the farmers were actually a little bit resistant because they didn't really think of milk as a product to sell. It was just consumed locally. They turned most of their milk into butter and cheese, which for one thing didn't spoil so quickly. They yeah, could, that they could ship it and store it. You and, could salt the butter. Exactly. The cheese is already preserved as it is. So those are sturdy products that can withstand uh, shipping and a little bit of time outside of refrigeration if need be. Right. So it took him a while to convince them, and he did it on an, in an economic way. They could get twice as much for the milk by um, selling it as milk than by turning it into butter. Which is so ironic, considering today, I mean... The price uh, that farmers can get for fluid milk is abysmal, and uh, products, specialty products like cheese and butter, are sort of a, a dairyman's only salvation in some cases to, to to try and stay in business. Well, and it also it was it took less effort. You know, you could just sell the milk; you didn't have to turn it into butter. Um, another thing was making butter was more the farmer's wife's job. <laughs> Interesting. Um, and she often was the one who took it to market um, when it was a, a small-scale operation. So um, it, I think it, it actually moved the income to the male half of the family, uh, and they probably saw some opportunity there. <laughs> Interesting. Very interesting. Um, and so, but the farms that we're talking about, these original farms that this, um, did you say it was an Erie Railroad uh, Is it New York and Erie? It ran through uh, the, from Lake Erie to the Hudson River, basically. Okay. And so those were probably not large farms. Uh, do you know about any statistics about how big those farms were, those original farms that were kind of convinced uh, to start trying to send milk into the city? Yeah, I saw some description of the farmers that the railroads were typically dealing with in the early days. They usually had fewer than 10 cows. And so they would have, you know, like three, four cans of milk. And these are 40-quart milk cans. A lot of people have probably seen milk cans in antique stores yeah. and places like that or, or just used as decor now. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I've seen plenty of rusty ones at the dairy farms that I visit, but not not so often used. <laughs> um, and... Um, so, you know, two, three, four cans of milk that would be what a farmer would produce in a day from his little herd. Um, and so, uh, you know, they would accumulate these few cans from all these little farmers at a milk platform or creamery that was along the railroad tracks until they had a carload of milk cans, which I think was about 300 cans. Mm-hmm. And then it was worth, you know, sending the train into the city. Okay. And um, so can you talk a little bit about um, the, the business people behind this? Um, I mean, obviously, was it just the farmers sending their milk in or were there kind of dairy, uh, you know, were there dairy companies behind it that were kind of facilitating that movement of milk from small farms into the city? Um, there, there were traders, for one thing, who would accumulate milk from individual farmers. Um, one way, actually, that New York City controlled the quality of their milk supply was they licensed the traders and in order to get a license in the city you had to allow 
the farms you were getting the milk from to be inspected by city inspectors. And so it was a way for New York City to control the milk supply, even though the milk itself was coming from places outside their jurisdiction. Okay, very interesting. Um, And a lot of what later became big dairy companies started out um, as single milkmen with a route to bring um, milk from one farm, perhaps, into the city. That's how um, Thompson Decker, who was one of the founders of Sheffield Farms, uh, got into the business. Uh, He started out carrying someone else's milk. Then he started his own farm and carried his own milk into the city in a wagon. And it it grew from there, merged with a couple other small operators, and eventually became uh, Sheffield Farms, which later on got absorbed into a company that became Kraft, which I think most everyone knows. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so there was kind of a consolidation from these original days of cows or t- farms upstate with uh, 10 cows, uh, just really small family operations. Um, Anne was mentioning uh, as well earlier that those farms were probably diver- diversified. They weren't relying solely on their milk for income for the family farm uh, to uh, you know people down in the city that would act as their trader. Um, to a much larger uh, scale operation. And um, that's what we'll get into when we get back from our short break. We're going to take another little musical interlude, and we'll be back with you just in a moment on Cutting the Curd. Cutting the Curd. Uh, this is the Heritage Radio Network, and our show today is sponsored by Picnic, Will Goldfarb's Pig Paradise down in uh, Battery Park. Um, I'm joined, my name's Ann Saxelby, I'm your host, and I'm joined today by Ann Mendelson, author of Milk, The Surprising Story of Milk Through the Ages, and industrial archaeologist Mary Habstrit, who has done a lot of research about milk trains and, uh, and New York City. So when we left off, we were talking about the gentleman who started uh, Sheffield Farms, what, or what became Sheffield Farms. Right. Uh, Thompson Decker um, started out um, carrying milk for another farmer, and then in the 1860s, he created a herd of 150 cows, which in those days was actually a pretty big herd of cows. We talked about Yeah. Um, most uh, cows were owned by uh, small farmers who wouldn't have more than 10. So he was clearly headed towards an industrial sort of operation. He's also credited with convincing the New York and Harlem Railroad to carry milk into the city. Mm -hmm. Uh, They weren't the first ones, but um, that supposedly happened in 1847. Um, I mentioned earlier the first milk train that we've been able to document uh, carried milk to the city in 1842. One thing that's interesting to know though is um the railroad that carried milk in 1842 didn't actually carry it all the way to the city okay it carried the milk to new jersey and then put it on a ferry boat and that continued with most railroads um through the uh, 20th century um we talk about milk trains but most trains ended in new jersey because new york city is a city of islands and um uh in uh the 1840s, the only railroads that had connections directly to Manhattan 
were the New York and Hudson River Railroad and the New York and Harlem Railroad. And they later merged to become, with some other small railroads, the New York Central. And who was that railroad controlled by, or who was it owned by? By the time it became the New York Central, it was um, uh, Admiral Vanderbilt. Okay. <laughs> um, Cornelius <laughs> Vanderbilt. And we know him um, as uh, the person who built uh, Grand Central Terminal. Um, and we know his name as one of those great wealthy family names in New York City. But uh, he started out in the ste- in the steamboat business. Okay. So he's always in transportation and went from boats to railroads and obviously built a huge empire eventually. Um, and it's actually interesting because the last show that I did was broadcast from uh, Shelburne Farm, which is up in uh, uh, on the shores of Lake Champlain, where they have a beautiful herd of brown Swiss cows now and make cheese. And uh, that was built by uh, his daughter, I guess, uh, Lila Vanderbilt, and her husband, William Seward Webb. So... That is, uh, there's, there's dairy and trains connected well, in the actually, cosmos. <laughs> there's a sugar connection because, um, uh, actually it was the Lecter Havemeyer Webb, um, who was Webb's wife and the Havemeyers were the family that started Domino Sugar and created the sugar trust and controlled 98% of the sugar consumed in the country at one time. <laughs> wow. So that was, that was really, yeah, control the, the food supply, literally control what is made and then how it's moved. That's a pretty, uh, that's a pretty powerful combination of, uh, of interests. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's pretty amazing. So he had the virtually the earth. He had the only train line that went directly into Manhattan. Right. And so, um, in a lot of ways, that was the most dependable way to get freight into the city because um, crossing the river, although it wasn't very far, you you were more susceptible to the weather and the tides. And um, uh, so it was very lucrative to have that that direct connection. And like you said, timing was everything because with milk, you're talking about spoilage. And as Ann mentioned before, nobody wanted spoiled milk. (laughs) <laughs> or sour milk of any kind. Everyone wanted fresh milk. Right. So the train was very, it was, it was, it was fast and reliable. It was fast. Um, and um, uh, what they did is they would put the milk cans that the farmers brought to the creameries, uh, they would keep them in uh, ice water tanks in the creameries until the train got there. And then they would load the entire can onto the train and just ice it down. they just cover it with ice and then move the train as fast as they could. And um, at least in later years, the milk trains had priority over all other trains. Passenger trains, everything? they had to get out of the way. The milk trains had to get through. And interestingly, you know, from time to time, there were strikes of railroad workers or um, the people who worked on the tugboats and barges that carried the milk across from New Jersey. And often there was some special arrangement made when everything else stopped moving to somehow get the milk through. Um, the milk trains would be exempt, or they would get um, the managers to take the milk through, even though the workers were on strike. Amazing. Amazing. Now, um, and later on, uh, there were some really famous or infamous strikes by dairymen mm. oh. um, who were upset because they were not getting the price they thought they should get because the, well, the distribution, the middlemen had gotten more prominent, the distribution channels were more complex and it was um, it was a terrible city citywide crisis every time this happened. Because all of a sudden there was no access to, to this, uh, to milk. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the milk was coming from, at least by the 1930s, as far as almost 500 miles in some cases. Wow. Um, Just with ice packed on top of it. Or by that point, yeah. were there other methods? Yeah, by that point, they would have had some refrigerated cars. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but, um, yeah, it's partly why milk trains were used in New York City for longer than they were in other places where they'd made a complete switch over to trucks, was the distances it had to come and... Um, in the 1930s, before the interstate highway system, um, it, it, trucks couldn't travel that kind of distance fast enough to make sure that the milk didn't spoil. So New York City kept using milk trains until uh, almost the 1960s. Mm. Wow. And so once it got into the city, um, and so you know the, the business is more established, there are more farmers and dairymen interested in shipping their milk to the city because it's a good business for them. Uh, eventually, 
we were talking about depots were constructed in the city to deal with that milk once it got here. And it was people like Sheffield Farms, right? There were some of the pioneers of, of, of establishing those kinds of uh, uh, facilities in Manhattan. Yeah, Sheffield Farms um, built a pasteurization plant in 1907 near the West Side Rail Yards and in 1909 on West 125th Street. And uh, the one on 125th Street is still standing. It's owned by Columbia University today. And uh, just a couple blocks away, they had a seven-story stable to house the horses and wagons uh, because that's how you got it from the plant to everyone's home. People, although there were dairy stores, um, in 1903 there were something like 12,000 dairy stores in the city. Just dairy. Just dairy. There were also 4,000 milk wagons. Wow. And uh, so the dairy companies made most of their money by delivering milk to people's homes. And so they all had fleets of wagons and stables full of horses in order to do that. So they essentially controlled the entire distribution chain. They bought the milk from the farms upstate. Once it got into the city, it was pasteurized at their facility, bottled at their facility, and delivered directly to the consumer. So there, there were really, you know, they were... They were the middlemen four times over. <laughs> yeah, and and they measured their success by the number of routes that they had in the city. Um, I have a question. Um, these dairy stores, um, were they mostly owned by particular dairy companies, or were they independent ventures? I don't have a good sense overall, but I know um, Sheffield Farms, which is the company I know the most about, did have its own stores. Mm-hmm. So I think you're right. I think they basically controlled the entire network yeah. if they could. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. And I hear um, I, I, somebody I was talking to about the show the other day about what we were going to be discussing, and um, they were talking about, oh, it was my friend Barbara, and she used to live in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, and um, she said that her landlord uh, was an old man who was born and raised there and remembered um, that uh, the milk routes that went along Fort Greene Park um, they used to have special socks that they would put on the horses um, because there was the park was lined by the ho- the homes of very wealthy people, mm-hmm. and they didn't want to be woken up by the sound of the milk wagon, so they had special socks for the horses. Yeah, that was um, something that was discussed around the time that the dairy companies started to switch to trucks in the city. They said that um, they'd already tried to alleviate the noise of the horses by putting rubber horseshoes on them and <laughs> such such measures because, uh, you know, if you think about it, um, if they're wearing iron horseshoes on stone-paved streets, a lot of the streets were paved with um, granite Belgian block or cobblestones, um, it would have been very loud. Yeah. And it, it wasn't the only problem. There was also the problem of the manure in the streets, the smell of the stables. I mean, people actually were very happy to see a changeover to trucks. We would look at it differently now. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, you know, they, they saw the horses as being smelly and loud, and they were really happy to see trucks come in. The civic authorities actually would say there's less pollution with cars and trucks. <laughs> yeah. yeah, less less pollution on the actual street, maybe, but right. in the air. Now, and you told me another interesting story. Um, you know, just the endearing qualities of of the um, the horse drawn wagons. You said something about the horses learning their delivery routes. Yeah, um, I think. One thing that was sort of surprising to me, and I think a lot of people would be surprised, is that horses were being used well into the 20th century. And um, and they were starting to change over to trucks in the 1930s, but because of World War II and all the restrictions on rubber and gasoline and things like that, um, it got delayed a little bit, and they didn't really adopt trucks until after World War II. But one of the reasons that at least the the delivery men themselves kind of resisted it was that um, once a, a, horses can be trained, and once they learn the route, they would walk from one house to the next, and they would know to stop. And the milkman didn't have to get up on the wagon and back down again. He could just let the horse go on to the next house, then walk up to the wagon, get the, the quart of milk and the pint of cream for that house, and walk it up to the house, and the horse would go on to the next customer and... You can't do that with a truck. Yeah, absolutely. I would be all for uh, horse-drawn wagons delivering milk again, but 
that seems uh, yeah a little little pie in the sky at the moment. But I was thinking, and this is completely ridiculous, but you know that expression, planes, trains, and automobiles? Mm-hmm. I was trying to think of some equivalent for what we're talking about because it's like ferry boats and horses and milk trains and, you know, it sounds all... Uh, it's just incredible the way that the, all those forces converge to make the delivery of such a perishable product possible yeah. for such a large population that was so far from farmland. Yeah. Um, so, well, when we come back, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about what was in those bottles of milk and how uh, the idea of milk came to change from being, you know, fresh cream line from the cow to uh, other stuff. We're going to talk to <laughs> Anne about that when we come back in a minute on Cutting the Curve. Cutting the Curd at the Heritage Radio Network. Uh, Cutting the Curd is sponsored today by Picnic, and our, uh, we're being engineered by Nat Wiener and produced by Jack Inslee. Um, I'm your host, Ann Saxelby, and I'm joined today by Mary Habstrit and Ann Mendelson, two uh, dairy experts, extraordinaires. And uh, we're talking about milk trains. And uh, basically, talking about milk trains is an important part of the industrialization of the dairy business and uh, and how that uh, came to make milk available for uh, large urban populations. Um but as the as the dairy business grew up, um, there were a lot of other things happening to the milk. It wasn't just the methods of distribution that were changing; um, the the milk itself was changing. And um, in Anne Mendelson's book, she talks a lot about um, how the idea of pure milk has uh, has been tremendously altered, especially in the uh, in the twentieth century. Um, so, Anne, could you tell us a little bit about how? We went from, you know, good cream-lined milk and glass bottles that were delivered to your door by a horse-drawn cart to the uh, what we see on our supermarket shelves today. Uh, well, what you see on the supermarket shelves today is an opaque carton. Um, you don't see the milk itself. And um, people used to, until certainly 50 or 60 years ago, um, used to judge milk by how creamy it was. Um, the nutritionists, the pediatricians, um, they were agreed that whole milk with all the, the milk fat, the cream in it, was the most nutritious. People would say, oh, you know, you know, Mrs. Jones feeds her kids skim milk. No wonder they're delinquents. <laughs> and um, in a very short time, after about, between about 1950 and 1970, uh, there was this tremendous change of nutritional opinion. Um, the, the milk fat in milk was the very worst part of it, uh, that skim milk was more nutritious, um, ounce for ounce, 
um, than whole milk. And this change coincided with the coming in of homogenized milk. Um, when you had cream-lined milk, the structure of the milk was the way it came out of the cow, essentially. Um, there was a water-based solution. There was the, the calcium-rich um, casein cells, that's the major kind of protein in milk, suspended in this water-based solution. And then you had these droplets of milk fat floating around in the whole thing. And people took it for granted that the milk fat, which um, was lighter in specific gravities than the rest of the milk, it would uh, rise to the top in a well-defined layer. Uh, people took it for granted that that was what really made the milk extra specially nutritious. Um, so you, you get your glass bottle of milk, you think, hmm, that has a really deep cream line, it must be great milk. The milk industry was not entirely happy with this state of affairs because it could be seen that if you could separate out the different components of the milk um, and work with them separately, uh, there were that many more opportunities for niche marketing and profit. So that, so that milk that was at one time so valuable, as Mary was saying, coming into the city as fluid milk, mm -hmm. they started to look for ways to make more money off of that fluid milk and <laughs> right. break it down a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yes, and um, what came in was the process of homogenization, where you, you centrifuged the milk at a milk plant as it came in, um, into the milk fat, and the skim milk. Then you recombined them in whatever proportion you wanted. These were arbitrary proportions, not the same proportions that it came out of the cow. Um, and you homogenized the milk. Um, then you had a nice opaque milk carton to fill it into, mm -hmm. um, which um, retail customers, housewives, loved it. Um, because it was disposable. You didn't have to worry about cleaning out the bottles and returning them to the milkman or whatever. Um, the milk processing companies loved it because it was expensive and cumbersome to keep track of the milk bottles, these, you know, these heavy glass things. Um, and everybody was happy except people who remembered the taste of real <laughs> old-fashioned cream-lined milk. Sure, which is always a generational thing, it seems like. With every generation, whatever you grow up eating is kind of the thing that you have nostalgia for, for mm -hmm. better or worse. Right. Um, so that's interesting. So, so with the opaque containers and with this desire for dairy companies to make a little bit extra, uh, skim off some more profits, <laughs> um, the, 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 the milk itself was altered. The cows were, the, everything was altered. Um, from the cow on up, um, the cows were increasingly bred and fed to give more, 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 more milk. And um, it's very hard to make a cow give more milk uh, without kind of altering the quality of the milk. Um, cows that are really champion milkers tend to give thinner, more watery milk than cows like um, Jerseys, Guernseys. Um, the, the premium came to be on quantity and not quality. And I think this was kind of encouraged by the nutritional climate of opinion. Um, what gets left out of the argument is that when cows give more milk, and when um, there's less butterfat in the milk, there's usually also less everything else. Mm -hmm. um, there's more water. It's as if the milk had been watered inside the cow. You can manage this. You can encourage the cow to give both more milk and really good milk, but it's a difficult and expensive um, balancing act. Yeah, and so... It's interesting as the uh, as the dairy business kind of grew up and moved from uh, what we were talking about before milk trains, home delivery services um, of of this milk to I guess I guess what I'm trying to get at is that people began to shop in a different way as well, which aided this mm -hmm. um, aided this transition of milk from you know cream line product delivered to your doorstep to faceless you know product you buy in in the supermarket um 
And so, um, Mary, Mary, maybe you can tell us a little bit about um, the, the sort of, uh, you know, the demise of the of the milk trains and how uh, as our economy became more truck-based, our shopping habits kind of changed too and how that uh, just kind of went along with this alteration um, and, and sort of uh, changing of, of what milk really was. Well, a lot of that was because of the love of the automobile. <laughs> um, people were, um, after World War II, um, moving out to the suburbs. Um, one little side effect of World War II was the people who used to work in the stores um, couldn't be replaced easily when they went away to war. And so they made stores more self-service. And and instead of having an individual dairy store and a, a butcher where you'd buy your meat, they started bringing all those things together into one place because they didn't have the staff to support a lot of individual shops. Uh, that was one motivating factor. Obviously, there's others. Um, and uh, people started to own cars and drive to the store. Um, after World War II, partly um, in case our country was attacked, they wanted better roads to move the troops, so we built interstate highways. And suddenly, delivery trucks could move equally as fast as trains could. And... So a lot of freight started moving to trucks instead of being carried on railroads. And um, originally, the trains um, also, when in the 1930s, when trucks started showing up on the scene and competing with them a little bit, um, the railroads were at a disadvantage because if they wanted to change their rates, they had to go through this huge bureaucracy to change what they charged to carry the freight. They had to go through the Interstate Commerce Commission and other authorities hmm. where the trucks could just set their own rates. And um, the other thing is the trucks could promise door-to-door -door service. A railroad, the train ends at the rail yard or the terminal, and they have to get the milk or whatever the freight is onto a wagon or a truck to get it to where it's going, to the pasteurization plant um, or the, the dairy company. And um, so trucks just beat them out. And by the 1950s, um, train, milk trains were, were ceasing to exist. Um, one of the big um, railroads, um, the last milk train ran in 1952. Wow, and so those uh, those facilities that were constructed in in Manhattan to uh, you know deal with the delivery of all that milk and the pasteurization of that milk and the bottling of the milk, um, what happened to to those uh, facilities? Um, the dairy companies started selling them off. Sheffield Farms, which had the world's biggest dairy depot that they um, built as part of the West Side Improvement Project in 1938. By the 1950s, they sold it off. They were going to depend solely on plants that they had out in the suburbs that were closer to their customers. And where was that plant? Um, it's at 59th and 11th. It's now the CBS Television Studios. Mm -hmm. So they, they got reused. Um, their plant on 125th Street, I mentioned that it's owned by Columbia University. They've actually owned it since um, not long after World War II. Um, when engineering was really taking off as a profession and they were planning to build a new engineering campus up there in Manhattanville. That didn't end up happening, but they did convert the pasteurization plant into a research facility where they tested equipment for nuclear power plants until just oh. a couple years ago. It's just incredible to see how these things are, are, are repurposed. Yeah, and... Um, there was a huge Borden plant in Manhattanville. It was in a building that they reused. It had been built as, it's, and it's known as the Studebaker building. It was built as a, a warehouse for cars and, and parts for the cars. And um, uh, Borden transformed it into a, a milk processing plant. And they held on to it until the 1960s. They finally sold it. And now those and now those train lines finally. Um, let, can we talk a little bit about those train lines and what has uh, become of those? Because that's uh, there is a, a very little bit of that history visible in Manhattan, um, but you know, largely we we don't know what's behind it. <laughs> well, the most visible remnant right now is the High Line. Um, that uh, was a viaduct that carried the New York Central freight lines um, into terminals on the West Side. And um, 
in uh, the 1930s, it was part of a huge project um, called the West Side Improvement. And they um, tore up Riverside Park, put the railroad underneath it, and then it came out of the ground near where the Javits Center is today and continued on downtown on this viaduct where it was raised up off the street. And part of the reason for that was the trains were killing people. The The tracks used to run right on the, down the middle of the street. Wow. And there was so much traffic with um, all the, um, the ships coming in on the Hudson River piers and um, wagons and trucks in the street and people walking in the street and they were getting run over by the trains. And so um, they raised it up above our heads. <laughs> and now we've rediscovered it and put a park on it. Amazing. It's really, really fascinating to think, yeah, where all those all those flowers grow now and uh, where all those people are walking as, as we speak, enjoying an ice cream cone on a on a Sunday used to be the uh the artery for for milk and dairy products to actually get into the city. Right. So well, I just want to thank you both so much for uh, for taking time to come out and, and be on the show and enlighten us a little bit about the history of our milk supply. Um, and it's been fun. Well, thank you. Yeah, and I hope uh, we get a chance to, to come back and talk again on the Heritage Radio Network. Uh, this has been Cutting the Curd, uh, and we'll see you in two weeks. <laughs>